Hi there, this is Dan Murphy. This episode of the Don't Change Much podcast is titled Values, Purpose, and Courage, Adopting the Mindset of a Champion. And the champion's name is Adam Creek. Many of you know Adam as a great Canadian Olympian, a three-time world champion rower, Olympic gold medalist. But would you be surprised to know that some of Adam's greatest achievements on the water led to some personal struggles and much-needed introspection, while some of his greatest failures provided him with energy to move forward in life. In this episode, Adam takes us on his personal journey of figuring out his values as an athlete, professional, and human being, and how those values ultimately align. Manage your stress, not the other way around. For simple ways to improve your mental health, check out the free MindFit Toolkit from the Canadian Men's Health Foundation. Complete a self-assessment, access virtual counseling, and learn more about how anxiety, stress, or depression might be impacting your health. Go to menshealthfoundation.ca and access the MindFit Toolkit to start improving your mental wellness today. Pleased to be joined by Adam Creek. Adam, I think most people would recognize your name from being a world-class athlete and rower, three-time world champion, Olympic champion. So we really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you. It's great to join you, and I'm excited excited to talk about you know values, you know, purpose, and courage. Okay. Well, let's. We just mentioned. I think you've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 international medals from your rowing career. But I want to start with going back to the first world championships in Seville, Spain, which was 2002, I believe. And, you know, this is the absolute peak of your profession. Mm -hmm. You have one gold medal with your buddies, your training partners. You've accomplished what you set out to do. Euphoria, of course. But a week later, not so much. Yeah. Well, it's and again, you know, think about it. You're 22 your heavyweight champion of the world. You've just been written into the history books. This was the first time ever Canada had won a world championships in the men's eight for rowing. There we were, top of the world. It was absolutely incredible. And we had we had come together. We had worked harder than we had ever thought possible. We had an incredible coach, incredible group of athletes who were training with one another. Yeah, what a thrill. What a thrill to win in Seville. I remember walking down the street, you know, high-fiving people and you know, drinking cervezas. It was a good time. And a week later, there I was back in Victoria, British Columbia, and the energy had evaporated. I was I was kind of I was bummed out. I was, you know, not clinically depressed, but certainly demotivated, sad, energy evaporated, energy low. And that feeling I think a lot of the, you know, guys out there listening can relate to is just when you don't feel like doing it anymore. Uh, you've, you know, you've been working hard, you had the goal, and now the goal has been accomplished and that energy is gone. And I, I questioned whether or not I wanted to continue on this path. We had, you know, we had been incredibly successful and the Olympics were two years away, the Athens Olympics. So all signs pointed to following that path and continue on that path. So I did some work and I think you know, this is, you know, this is when we talk about, you know, values, purpose, and courage, you have to just do the work. If you're in that low place 
and you're feeling a little bit off, you have to commit to wanting to feel better. Uh, you have to commit, have the courage to follow through with that commitment that you've taken to yourself and figure out what those next actions are. And when you have the courage to take action, you will then build up confidence and your energy will return and you'll, you know, you'll be, you'll have a new, yeah, a new path and the energy will come back and it will be aligned. So at that time I had taken that commitment to figuring this out and figuring, you know, do I want to continue or do I want to do something else? And through that introspection, conversations with, with friends, conversations with, you know, wise, you know, mentors and elders, I came to the conclusion that I did want to continue, but something was a bit out of alignment. And I recognize it now as my values, but at that point in time, I wasn't really sure what values were. And, and I heard them from a number of different people that wasn't quite clear. What I've come to understand what values actually are, you know, values are the first step of logic. We are emotional beings driven by emotion. We have a lot of emotion in our body, in our belly, in our chest, everywhere. And sometimes it's hard to articulate what those emotions are telling us. And values are a way that we can access that emotional side of our being and begin to process it with our mind and with, it, with, our, with our thoughts. I had realized at that time that one of my core values was a generous impact. And as an athlete training for the Olympics, competing at the world you know, at the world level at in high performance, you don't have that much time to deliver impact. You're, you're waking, eating, sleeping, training. Everything's focused on that. <clears throat> but I realized that if I wasn't going to serve this part, we all have different parts of ourselves, you know, of our emotional being. And if you don't serve these core parts of yourself that are hungry, that, that need that service, they start to turn into gremlins and they you know, they tear you apart from the inside. And that's what I was experiencing. That was that depression in Victoria. So I realized that generous impact was important to me. And I looked for ways to uh, set goals so that I could actually express that, that value and, and honor that part of myself. And the conclusion that I came to at that time was to actually become a big brother through big brothers and sisters. And it became a very rewarding relationship, not just for the little the little guy whose name was Adam, <laughs> by the way, still is. <laughs> and I, ironically, now you know he's in his he's almost thirty now. We're still together, and he's he's got a tech startup, and I'm coaching him as an executive business coach. So it it's come full circle, and the relationship has has lasted for a long, long time. And you know that that moment of pain. You know, that moment of despondency and, you know, the blahs and the energy evaporation, you know, like I said, took courage. And that courage was you have to take a commitment to do the work and have courage to actually follow through on that commitment that you made. And then you can get through the process. Were you worried taking this on knowing just how much training consumes your everyday life or do were you confident that this would be a nice i don't want to say break but something you could do to kind of make your daily life more fulfilling well it, it was a break did add more fulfillment and you know and for some people it wouldn't because everybody's values are different everybody has different emotional parts and different pieces of themselves that need 
service. So I can't tell what another person will value or what you will value, but for me it was. And the funny thing is, when you serve your values, there's a positive energy return. So when you identify you know, this, this part of you that needs expression, and the moment you start expressing it, the energy starts to return. And there's a positive energy input. It's, it's this counterintuitive part of the human condition that sometimes when you put energy into things, it gives more energy back. It's kind of like exercise. If you haven't exercised for a while, you start exercising, and all of a sudden, you have more energy by putting out energy, which is counterintuitive. And the same, it's the same thing with values. You put energy into these parts of yourself that you value, and then your condition responds, and you get that positive energy, you get that positive boost. So, you know, in some odd way, it actually helped me train harder. It helped me give more energy to the pursuit of the Olympics. It helped me stay focused and helped me stay aligned in, in a far better way. Do you think that's partly because your mind had different things to focus on, especially once you figure out this is a value, this is something that perhaps when it was time to turn the athlete switch off in your head at the end of the day or in the morning or whenever it was, that it helped you re-energize for the actual training the next day because you weren't all consumed? Yes. I think there is there is definite benefit from the the focus switch. You know, that's, you know, it's a great psychological principle of you can't focus on the same thing all the time. So yes, that definitely helped. And that was a contributing factor. Okay. So you win the worlds in 03, but you know, as I know for you guys, it's a year to year thing with the worlds are huge, but a lot of the world looks at the Olympics Mm -hmm. and you guys were the big favorites going to 04. Maybe just uh, talk about the emotions of that leading up to the race. And, you know, I know you said that after you won in Seville, there was a depression week later. You guys didn't do what you wanted to do. Was the feeling the same after in terms of being depressed? Because, but a totally different result, but was it the same type of feeling? Yeah, we went to Athens. We, we had won in the Seville World Championships, and then we repeated that in Milan, won the Milan World Championships, then headed to, we were heading to Athens, and we had lots of success that year. But our crew fell apart. We had the proverbial choke. One of our guys got in a slight injury. We fell apart. And in the final, the we came in fifth. We didn't even podium. The Americans were very strong that year. So I think had we rode at our best, we would have been fighting with them for a gold or silver medal. But the like the result was devastated. We were there with the mindset gold or nothing. On top of that, you have very high expectations. And... Well, more than that, we had potential. We had potential that was unrealized. And there's nothing that's more crushing to the soul than knowing that you have potential that you've failed to, uh, that you've failed to express and you've performed below your ability, you know, especially on such a big stage. So it was, it was crushing. We crossed the finish line. I remember just collapsing the bottom of the boat. You know, that's one of the beauties of endurance style sports or these power endurance style sports is that you're so exhausted at the finish line, you can't resist any of the emotion that comes over your body. So when it's elation, it's pure elation. And as a viewer, it's so fun to see. And when it's devastation, it's pure devastation. And so it breaks your heart as a viewer. And you're feeling that to the max because you can't, you can't, you don't have the energy to resist anything that wells up. And so I remember um, collapsing to the bottom of the boat and just feeling so despondent and shocked and 
you know, five minutes earlier, six minutes earlier, I was sitting on the start line looking at everybody, you know, going through my pre-race routine, thanking them for the competition and thanking them for showing up so that I could beat them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's you know, <laughs> doing all this stuff that you do. And then it's gone. And I remember getting to the dock afterwards and we were, we got out and everybody, you know, normally after victory, you get out and you hug all your teammates. But after a big loss like that, we we kind of went and we were consoling each other. And then it was crazy because all of us just started breaking down and sobbing. Like we were just crying and crying. After that, it was, it was similar. You know, the, the, you know, failure and success, I will say, are two sides of the same coin. There was some similarity there, but I think there was a deeper level of embarrassment that came with that simply because it was a failure to live up to potential. And there's shame that came along with that as well. And, and again, through the exploration of that, I came to realize that there were certain, you know, values that I wasn't able to express. You know, I wasn't able to express them properly. And so this is the, you know, this is the crux of, of the values philosophy, that when you understand your values and you live your values, change is in a crisis. And success doesn't become a crisis and failure doesn't become a crisis unless some of your core values are violated. So again, we have these parts of ourselves, we have these parts of our being that need to be expressed. And if they are not acknowledged and we're not expressing them, you know, which we're calling our values, if we're not expressing them in victory, if we're not expressing them in, in failure, it becomes very off-setting and off-putting. Yeah, after the, after the Athens games, I did some soul searching. It took me a couple of years to actually really figure out what had happened and what was out of alignment. And, you know, there was, you know, I think it was value achievement. One of my values is ambitious achievement. I've, I'd like achieving ambitious things while also, you know, maintaining, you know, connection, a loving connection with, with people during the process. I think there were pieces of that that were missing and certainly the ambitious achievement because it was, you know, the result did not line up with our potential nor our expectations. So how, so you said that was a couple of years after that, that you figured that out. Did you still have your eyes on 2008 at that point? Were you still sure this was the avenue you wanted to take? I thought I was done after 2004. It was too painful. The loss was so painful. I And the... And having tasted the bittersweetness of victory, I remember thinking, you know, if victory isn't that good and failure is that bad, you know, why put in all the work? <laughs> and the you know the pay the pay isn't very great either. So you have you have to be doing it for for a deeper drive that's within you. So I debated with that. I, I'd moved down to California and I started training. I acted as a player coach and I trained a bunch of of younger guys in the sport of rowing. And that actually rekindled my passion, that rekindled my energy. Helped me remember, you know, why I did it. Simply I loved the motion. I love getting physical. You know, I love pushing myself to to the max. And by being a mentor to others, it rekindled my, you know, my passion and desire. And eventually, you know, I reconnected with, you know, five of my teammates from Athens and then four new ones. And we, we put together an eight and we, we won the Olympics 
We won the world championships in Munich in 2007, then we won the Olympics in Beijing. After the loss in 04, you became a big brother, and then after the win, sorry, after the, the win in 02, you became a big brother after the loss in 04, you started mentoring people. So it, it sounds like the same kind of core value right there is what helped you push through to make the decision that was best for you. Yeah, I think that's a great insight. And when we talk about core values, they're, you know, they're there within us. You know, they're, they're core. We call them core because they don't change situationally. And I still have that same, you know, that same value of generous impact. I want, I'm driven. There's a part of me that I can't help it. You know, I can't help it. I will need to give a generous impact no matter what I do. And that's a part of me that is so hungry that if it's not served, you know, it eats me up. And I think all of us, all of us have, have parts like that. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like it looks like through me, but it will look a unique way through the lens when you do the work. You know, when you have the, you, you know, when you're having a low point and you make that commitment to figure it out and then you have the courage to, you know, set goals in alignment with, with what you're learning. Sounds like you, you hate losing more at this point than you liked winning almost, Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of athletes that feel that way. And also I think maybe you were lucky compared to some athletes. You, you, you had this introspection during your, the height of your athletic achievement. Some have to wait till they're done their sport before they realize what might be next. So after you won the gold, did you already kind of have a path in your mind that you wanted to go post-athletic career? Or was this just kind of the beginning of the journey of realizing who you were and, and kind of what purpose you wanted to have? After the Olympics, I knew I wanted to you know move into the lecture circuit and give some speeches, which I, I enjoyed. I enjoyed the performance aspect of it, the preparation, the training. I had to get coaches. You know, I got acting coaches and speech coaches and writing coaches. And I really enjoyed that, that process. And so I leaned into, into that. And then after doing that for a year or two, I, I started to commit and, and double down. I had another project where we took a rowboat across the ocean <laughs> And that's, that's a story for another time. <laughs> you found out the Bermuda Triangle was real. <laughs> yes, I found out the Bermuda Triangle is real. It's, it's really dangerous. It's not a quick story, obviously, <laughs> but if you can just at least. Yeah, so 70, we decided it took four years of preparation and 73 days into rowing from Dakar to Miami. We were in the Bermuda Triangle. Funky wave flooded our sleeping cabin. I was inside of it, turned our boat upside down, and uh, we had to call for help. You know, there's a great, there's a great TED Talk called I Seek Failure <laughs> that I recorded, I think in 2013 or 2014, about that. So the time across the ocean and spending time in nature getting physical, that's when, that's when I truly committed to my current path in life, which is as an executive business coach and, you know, and a trainer. I was thinking, you know, one of the, the gifts of taking these, long, if you've ever taken a long hike or a long bike ride or a long you know, paddle or extended times in nature is that you have a lot of time to think. And after a number of days out there, you start craving a society again and coming back and you start thinking, what, what am I going to do when I, when I come back? It's, it's almost a form of therapy. And I know people who call it adventure, adventure therapy. And so it was at that time that I'd, 
you know, I connected to my purpose, which was, you know, I'm here in a supporting role. I'm here to support, uh, you know, high driving you know, business people, executives, uh, leadership teams to, you know, to perform at their best. You know, that's what I did as an athlete. And that's now what I do as, you know, as a business coach. And it's, it's really quite thrilling. Well, I think leads us to this, which was the family vacation. I do want to follow up after the story, just of helping our listeners, like try to figure out what their values are, how to do that, how to figure out what matters to you, how to figure out what you love to do. But going for a little family vacation on Quadra Island and Desolation Sound, how did that impact that uh, core value? Yeah, it was awful. Well, there's, we had just been through a very stressful year and it was, it was right before our business had turned around. I think it was the previous month. We could see it. You know, okay, the next month we're actually going to make profit again, which is great. We'd worked incredibly hard on renovation, then like renovating the business. So it had been about a year and a half of grinding, 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 no, no break. So it was, we, we went to this family camp where they had a big tents. They cooked food for you. They had some counselors there to help with the kids and, it was so relaxing, you know, sleeping outside with the family. It was, you know, is perfect in my opinion. This great sort of family vacation, relaxing sort of thing. About three days into it, we decide that we were going to climb up this this hill called the Bluffs. It's near Main Lake Provincial Park on Quadra Island in British Columbia, and we we go up. It was you know myself, my wife, and our three kids and friend and her two kids we you know we climb up to the top and it's great view at the camp there's no cell phone reception but at the top there was so you know cell phones start dinging and so first it's my wife's turn so I'm watching the kids and you know she's answering the email and then I, well I, I should probably check in too and make sure that you know everything's okay oh well, here's a couple urgent ones so I start answering them and then the kids start whining and complaining and they're hungry and it's lunchtime it's We'll head down. You catch up. I need to get these kids moving. So, okay, yeah, let me finish this up. And so I'm thumbing away, <laughs> you know, finishing the email. And then I put my phone away and I'm, I'm walking down the trail and you hear it. And it's, it's awful. It, I've heard it sounded like a landslide. And I was like, oh, shit. And and then I just heard screaming and the you know, sound you, you don't ever want to hear, really. And so I started running down the mountain, you know, scrambling down. And what had happened was there was a really um, sharp part of the trail where my wife didn't, you know, feel completely safe. So she picked up my four-year-old and was carrying him around that when she stepped on a piece of, of gravel and she, she slipped and her foot broke and then she fell off the cliff. She fell down 25 feet and wham, hit a rock. She was still holding on to the little guy and he was four years old. He fell out and he tumbled, you know, head over, foot over, boom, smash at the bottom, another 50 feet and landed on a giant pile of moss. You know, thank God for the moss. And I get there, I see my wife. She's okay. Well, she's not okay, but she's, she's on the phone with 911 pretty quickly and the I run down to the bottom and see my son who's just lying there and in all sorts of pain. My oldest son, who is 
11 at the time, had wrapped up, taken off his t-shirt and wrapped him up. He had his mass, his whole calf was ripped to shreds. And so I've, my backpack, I always bring first aid kits because uh, I've run across a lot in the bush, do a lot outside. And so rip it off and start field dressing him, check him for concussion, you know, take him, work him out. And we had another couple was out there. So they helped, they helped my wife out. I've, I field dress my four-year-old. We go out the trail, take a boat, a boat to an ambulance, ambulance to a helicopter, helicopter to, and this was really hard for my wife because my wife had to go to Vancouver general. And then my son had to go to the kids hospital and there was COVID rules. So only one parent could be there as well. And she had, she had to get all of her injuries looked at as well. So you're there and oh my God, you know, you know, thank, you know, I see why people donate millions to children's hospitals because, you know, you look there and the surgeons were so wonderful and they, they stitched him up, but you're like the amount of pain that he was going through the whole time is like, daddy, it hurts so much, it hurts so much. And, you know, as a parent, you'd take a hundred, a thousand, a million times the pain just to take anything away from a uh, little one. And so, yeah, it was... <clears throat> It was pretty intense. What they stitched him up. They pulled out the a couple of teeth that had been dislodged, and and uh, you know, and he healed up and he bounced back pretty quickly. It took my wife a bit longer, you know, and there is still some trauma that we had to work through. And you know, even to this day, whenever I hear a child scream, it's not the same. Before something like this, child, oh, okay, well, what's happening? And now it's instant alert hyper alertness you know what's happening uh, but that's yeah the but again we're talking about values and what that rekindled was you know this loving connection and this you know this care of of family and how important it is to maintain that loving connection with you know each and every one of of my family members and if i'm not doing that on on a on a daily basis then something's missing oh so you don't want listeners to have to go through something like that to realize how much the family means them. And I, I'm sure that everybody does feel that way. And then especially if something happens, it snaps you really into focus. So I kind of want to like have an actionable plan here. You know, it's called the don't change much podcast, mm -hmm. as you know, but just as simple for someone to figure out what the core values are. You, you began that process in 2002 and you're still refining it. But if you want to sit down and just start thinking about it, how do you figure out what your core values are. Core values are parts of yourself that influence every decision that you make. And when you set goals and make decisions, taking your core values into account, life is always better. You know, the hard isn't, is only as hard as it needs to be. And the good is as good as it can possibly be. And that's the benefit of having, having your core values is using them when you make decisions, using them when you take actions Core values become that much more important when you're going through time and transition. The easiest way that I've found to discover core values is, uh, is I suppose a two part process. The first part is to ask yourself some questions. And then the second part is to look at a list of value words. So the first set of questions is relatively simple. Who? Who is important to you in your life or who has been important to your life? And what have they taught you? And what sort of values do you think that they have, that they've, they've embarked upon you? So friends, mentors, parents, grandparents, you know, even 
if there's people you look up to as you know you know athletes or politicians or business people what character traits do they embody that that resonate with you deeply next thing to think about is what you know, what is valuable to you in your life you know do you have things in your life that are valuable to you and so why why are those why are those valuable so start thinking about the things you know of my wife has a ring from her grandmother that is valuable to her and it's not you know for you know for financial reasons but it's from a, that that connection the two of them had had and and everything that they taught her and then think about when so when have you felt most aligned in your life best in your life and think about the best times of your life and and what values were present and then think about when you've felt off and when things have been not working so well and what values were missing because like we said change is not a crisis unless a value has been violated so we said who what when where you know so are there places where you feel in alignment places of that you've been where everything has felt right and and again explore that and so once you've explored each of those you know, the why is your purpose. We're not necessarily talking about purpose right now, but who, what, when, where will give you clues to your values. And the better you understand your values, more likely you'll be able to find a purpose that's in good alignment. And uh, after you go through that reflection, that self-questioning, it's also important to be in a centered place and an honest place. There's no values you should have or shouldn't have Sometimes we're raised in a family and our values are different from the family that we were raised in. Sometimes we're raised in a religion and then as we mature, we realize that there's things that don't, don't align or there's political conversations or culture wars that may align or don't align. And so it's important that you distance yourself from a lot of that and you recenter and you just get into a, you know, a really honest place. And uh, when you're answering those questions, and then once you have those questions, you go through a list. You get a list of, I have one on my website, I think we've linked it on the Don't Change Much website, where you can go through the list of values and tick off the ones that then resonate. Just listen to your instinct and tick off, yeah, this is me, this is me, this is me. And once you have a list, you'll have a list of 10, 20 values. Start grouping them and start grouping like values with like values and try to make yourself for three or four groupings of these words. And after you've made the groupings of the words, find a common theme of those words and then sit with it and see if that will, you know, and see if those words resonate. Because again, it's a, it's an emotional process and it's an art form because values are the first step or the first connection of logic. They're the first connection of your mind to your emotional state, to your emotional being. And it does take work. And what I've found working through them myself, working others through them, is that often you need to revisit them every six months or it will take it will take a few months until you until they really settle in and they become um, you can recognize them. But the the beauty of of labeling, you know, these states of being, these parts of yourself that that you have, is that you can then identify them and when things are not going well, uh, you can say which value is not being served and can I set a goal to express that value or do I need to set a boundary to make sure that I'm protecting myself so I can express that that value and, and again it comes back to that you know make the commitment have the courage and do it and it makes the 
the hard times only as hard as they need to be and the good times as good as they can be. You understand this, this task could be daunting to some men. I mean, I'm in my fifties and to go through a process like this you know, with introspection, you might say, oh my goodness, have I just wasted 20 years of my life without realizing really what my core values are, or how I should be doing things. I guess it's never too late to try to zero well, in on this kind of stuff. Well, it's never too late. And in your 40s and 50s is a great time to do it you know, because we go through different stages of adulthood. And often we think about the time when we move from child to, to adult, where we find that independence. But midlife, we go through another transition where we become, you know, we become a more mature adult. And part of that is to, when we're young, we need to achieve. You need that, you're driven to achieve, but other things start to bubble up and matter more, especially as we age, when we become more aware of it. And I'd say that's when values work is even more important. It is so important in your 40s, in your 50s, in your 60s to either do the work and, and uncover it or revisit it and, and, and get clear on what you value. And no, you haven't wasted time because everybody has the journey and you're on the journey that you need to be on. And that has informed what has needed to happen until now. You know, let's focus on the present. Let's focus on the future. And, you know, you can, you can do the work, which is, it's hard work because it takes some introspection. Sometimes it takes some, some guidance. You might need someone to help you guide you through it, but then it also takes commitment and courage because once you uncover your values, that's not good enough. It's, it's about aligning your calendar, aligning your, your actions, aligning your behaviors with the things that you value. And if you recognize there is a value that's unexpressed and it's causing you pain, you will have to make changes in your life and that will be uncomfortable, but it will be less uncomfortable than not changing. Lastly, I'm very interested in reading about find you have to find out what you love to do okay and like now i love to play golf but i can't quit my job and go play golf because i'm gonna be broke awfully quick i won't make a penny is there a way to balance doing what you love to do you know within the limits of your everyday life i think there is yeah i think there is because we all have we have to make an income if you've got a family especially a young family that takes a heck of a lot of work there's, you know, we have commitments that are, you know, can sometimes frustrate us and get us down. I think it's important to make sure that you're setting small goals or social systems up to make sure you're doing the things that you love to do. You know, for me, I've got a small group of, of guy friends. Friday morning, we get together, we run up and down this you know, this little mountain Mount Doug in, in Victoria, and then we jump into the ocean. And that's, that's my step out of the craziness of life. Because, you know, as much as I, I, I guess I, I love the work I do, I don't love it all the time. It's freaking work. That's, that's why it's work. That's why people pay me to do it. Because, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not comfortable all the time. And, you know, I would, I'd prefer just to be, you know, playing around in the mountains and, you know, going climbing and, and hiking and, um, you know, playing in the ocean. But that's not a, you know, that's not a possibility either. So I think it's, 
again, when we acknowledge that we have these parts of ourselves that need feeding, like, you know, you love golf, well, you carve out the time, negotiate it, and make sure that you're golfing a little bit, always. Mm -hmm. And as long as you keep feeding that, it gives you that energy back. And it comes back to the, one of the starts of the, the conversation. Find these activities that when you put energy into them, they give energy back to you and they increase your energy. And that, that's, that's so helpful. And that's, that'll, that'll help improve everyday life, work life, work life. And it's small. It's yeah. small. Like work is a freaking grind. Midlife. I shake my head at it because it's a crunch. It's, it's so freaking hard and you know, we're up for the task. So that's, let's figure out what we need to do. And you can pick small things and that's, you know, I guess that's don't change much, mm -hmm. right? We've just pick small things, change them, set small goals. And before you know it, you know, what do you say? Water boils at a hundred degrees and at 99 degrees, it doesn't look any different. And then the moment it turns into a hundred degrees, it transforms into steam. So you don't notice it when it's going from, you know, 90 to 91 to 92 to 93 to 94 to 95 to 96. You don't notice the small change, then eventually, poof, right? State change. And I think that's don't change much. Just find a small thing, focus on it, make sure it's in alignment with, with your values, with your core being, and um, you know, keep shifting. And eventually, you know, eventually it gets way better. Couldn't think of a better way to end it. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more helpful tips on improving your mental and physical health, please visit menshealthfoundation.ca and don'tchangemuch.ca. Thanks to everyone who listened and to those who have followed. If you haven't, hit the follow button. That way you'll never miss one of our podcasts and you'll be updated on future episodes.